The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. All right, good morning, church. Privilege to be back here with you in our sermon series, Cultivating Hope. It should say hope up there. I'm not, I uh, must have uh, mistyped that this week, thinking we had moved on the, maybe the Advent calendar here with uh, the candles, but it's Cultivating Hope. And we're in this sermon series in the book of Genesis, seeing Christ in the book of Genesis and how he is our hope and our peace. So you can go ahead and take out your Bibles. We're looking at Genesis 15 this morning, your Bibles or your apps, whatever it is. Uh, that you used to follow along. If you do not own a Bible, we have blue paperback Bibles in the seats in front of you. You can take those out and use those to follow along. Those are actually our gift to you. We'd ask you to take those home if you would like. And we have some more out in our welcome area uh, in the lobby. So please do uh, take those with you uh, before you leave. I'm really grateful to be bringing Genesis 15 uh, to you this morning. Genesis 15 is one of these few passages in the Bible where I can actually remember the first time where I heard it explained to me. Uh, I was driving in my car on the way to a seminary class, actually, and I was hearing someone uh, preach on it through my car speakers. And as the pastor was teaching through this text, I felt like I was being born again, again, right? I had this overwhelming sense of God's mercy and his kindness to us and what it means for me to be a child of God and my understanding of the scriptures, just everything. So I had a paradigm shift when this came alive to me. And I really hope that uh, if this is your first time hearing Genesis 15, that you will have that same experience this morning. I got, I got to the campus, I remember, and I, I, I walked into my Old Testament professor's office and I told him what I just heard. And I said, is this true? Is everything I just heard, is this true? And he said, yes. He kind of had this like little giggle, you know, uh, he got it, you know, and he kind of giggled and said, yes, it's true. It's just an amazing, amazing text. This passage has a lot to teach us about cultivating hope, having hope in the Lord. And I think this is a much needed message for our time and place because I think this besetting feeling of hopelessness, many of us are, I think, are beginning to feel uh, almost like this kind of dull ache in our side. It's just kind of settling in in our culture. Uh, you know, uh, uh, economists and researchers will tell us that more than half of Americans now believe that their children will be less financially well off than, than they were, you know, that the next generation isn't going to do as well as the current parent generation. Uh, doctors are telling us now that mortality rates are starting to go up for the first time in decades. And if we're paying attention to the words that are coming out of our own mouths, I think we're beginning to hear even from ourselves just kind of a a cynicism or a bitterness or just a hopelessness about the future. And so we need to talk about hope and where true hope can be found. And I think we're going to find that in Genesis 15 this morning. So please turn your attention with me now to Genesis 15 as we read from the Word together. This is God's Word. After these things, the Word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. 
And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then God said, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing now upon the preaching of your word, and I ask that you would be with me as I speak, calm my fears, give me clarity of thought, of heart, and mind. Thank you, Lord, we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. As we go through our text this morning, I want you to think of this in terms of two movements, okay? Two movements. The first is a movement from fear to faith, and then secondly, we're going to go from faith to hope. So from fear to faith, and then from faith to hope. Our passage begins this morning with a word from the Lord appearing to Abraham in a vision, This is Abram. He's going to be called Abraham in chapter 17. He's filled with fear. On account of what, we're not exactly sure. But if you look back in chapter 14, we have this this moment where uh, Abraham rides out against his enemies. There's these these, uh, folks who had captured his nephew Lot and kidnapped him. So Abraham rides out and he defeats his enemies. So he might be afraid of retaliation from the people he had just struck against. He could also be afraid for his future. Because we see in this text that he doubts whether or not God is going to keep his promises to him. It's probably a little bit of both, but what's important for us is not why Abraham is afraid, or even that Abraham is afraid, but how God meets him in his fears. I am your shield, Abraham. That's how God identifies himself. I am your shield, 
He does not condemn Abraham for being afraid. By calling himself our shield, as he does often in the scriptures, God shows us that he can protect us. Even when we feel as if we're being assaulted on all sides, when there's no hope for our lives or our present circumstances, God brings us his comfort by giving us a shield. And he says our shield is himself. This ought to be a great consolation to us. But let's not miss something else about this. What is a shield if not an instrument for war, for battle? In the absence of fear or danger, do we have need for a shield? No. It would simply be dead weight. So when God calls himself Abraham's shield and therefore our shield, it is a comfort, but it's also a summons. It is a summons to have courage and to stay in the fight for faith and for hope. Because that's what the Christian life is. It's a battle. It's a fight for faith and for joy and for hope in the Lord. This is why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Because we wage war not against the things of this world, flesh and blood, but against spiritual authority, spiritual rulers of evil and the powers of darkness. Jesus, when he's close to the end of his life, in John chapter 16, he says to his disciples, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This verb for take heart that is used in the New Testament is the same word that we could translate have courage. Jesus says, have courage, I have overcome the world. Likewise, when he walks out on the water to his disciples in Matthew 14, he says to them, have courage, I am, fear not. Jesus is our cause to take up our shield and have courage. He has promised that he will always be with us just as the Father is always with him. And he has overcome the world. If we want to talk about living a life of hope, we have to begin with facing our fears and our doubts and having courage. God has promised to fight for his people, it's true, but he also summons us to be courageous in the battle and in the fight that's before us. Faith is like a muscle which we have to exercise frequently and often. We build our faith most when it is exercised in seasons of great tension and difficulty. This is simple in theory. Many of you know it's difficult in practice when these seasons of fear and difficulty and great tension go on for months or years or even decades. But we too, if we want to hope in the Lord, we must begin with this courage 
courage to take up our shield and to face our fears and our doubts. And I think some of you, like me, need to hear and receive this word this morning. A word of consolation that God is and will be your protector, yes. But also this summons to have courage to take up your shield and stay or maybe get back in the fight for faith and for hope. I've shared with you before my battle with ongoing, seasonal, recurring depression and melancholy. And I share these things with you because I don't want you to think it strange when seasons of darkness come upon us. We shouldn't think it strange when these things happen to us. So do you know what taking up my shield has looked like for me, even recently, just the last couple weeks? It means making the hard choice in the morning when I get up to believe that God's promises are true for me today. They're true for me today. And that means I start by not sleeping in like I want to. I don't check out. I don't hide from the world, but I get up because I know my wife and my kid and people need me. It means keeping watch over my diet to make sure I'm energized in the right way and doing what I can. It means making regular time for prayer and study of the word even when I feel like it's going to be fruitless, which it often does before it begins. It means I bought a plant and a happy light for my office. It means apologizing to my wife and humbling myself even when I'd rather just shut down. It means pursuing people to spend time with when I'd rather just be checking out at home. It means choosing wise counsel who I know who will encourage me but also correct my perspective when I need it. That's what it looks like for me to pick up my shield right now and to trust in the Lord. What about you? What's the fight that the Lord has for you? What would God have you do to stay in the fight for faith and for hope this next week, this next season, or maybe in this next year? Fear not, beloved. He is your shield. And with Christ, your reward is very great. And so Abraham faces his fear with courage in the Lord, but yet there's more obstacles for him to overcome. We saw this in verses 2, 3, and 8. He doubts. He believes God, yet he doubts. You understand his doubts, don't you? You understand where they're coming from? God has promised to give Abraham descendants who would be a great nation so that all the earth would be blessed. That's Genesis 12. And now here is Abraham, still without an heir, apart from one of his household servants. His wife has been barren their whole lives. And as the author of Hebrews says, Abraham is so old, he's as good as dead. Okay, so you understand his doubts. So Abraham is saying, Sovereign Lord, I trust you, but I still have my doubts and my questions about you. I'm not really sure if you're going to keep up your end of the covenant, and even if you do, I'm not sure if I could keep up my end of it. I'm not sure if I could possess the land that you say you're going to give me. Some of you may have heard the name uh, Thomas Kuhn. 
and his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Uh, his big thesis in this book was that new ideas in science don't come from just sort of a linear, you know, uh, progress through history, like one idea after another. But they generally come, they're unexpected. They come from outside-of-the-box ideas. They're things that nobody thought of before, and they come in and then transform the way that everybody thinks about the world. You see, new ideas are hard for us, though, to, to take in when they first come to us. New ideas that change the way we see the world, they're hard for us to accept. Human beings, we naturally desire sort of an internal coherence. We like the way we understand things, and we don't want to rethink the world with new information. We'd rather accept facts that merely affirm what we already think than have to go through the difficult work of rethinking how we see the world, right? Maybe you've had experiences like this before when a new fact comes to you that makes you have to rethink kind of everything, you know? Uh, Neva and I, we had an experience like this. This was the first thing that came to mind for me last year. We took a trip to the African American History Museum down in D.C., and it's just a wonderful museum if you haven't gone there yet. I would really encourage you to go. And what struck me as we walked through this museum was how much I didn't know. You know, like how much wasn't taught to me. And as you're going through this exhibit, you're having this sort of experience of maybe rethinking some historical moments, some periods, some, some events from a different perspective. And that's just, you walk out leaving saying, I have to rethink, kind of, the way I view history. The way I view history might have to change based on this new information that I have. Abraham was having a tough time accepting some new information. He was having a tough time accepting God's truth that was coming to him because it didn't really mesh with how he viewed the world. In his mind, people his age don't have kids. His wife isn't capable of having a kid. He's too weak to conquer a nation. This, this just doesn't happen. These promises that God has made to him. And so both times we see in verses 2, 3, and 8, Abraham brings his doubts to God, and God meets him with an answer. I want you to see how, again, just like how God meets him in his fear, that God does not condemn or shame Abraham for having doubt. Time and again, we see in the Bible that God is both gentle, but he's firm with those who have doubts. And here with Abraham, we see this here. He meets him, but he doesn't allow Abraham to stay in his doubt. He meets him, he gives him an answer, and he gives Abraham a sign. With the first doubt, Abraham comes to him and says, Abraham, I will give you an heir, and I want you to come with me. Come out and look at the stars. Are you able to number them? That's how many, off, how many your offspring will be. We'll look at how God responds to his second doubt in a moment, but you see how important these doubts and God's answers were on Abraham's journey to faith, don't you? It is Abraham's doubt and God's answer that leads him to a deeper faith and trust in the Lord. You see this in many of the key figures in the Bible. It's their doubt and their God's answer that leads them to stronger faith. Because God meets us with tenderness and kindness, but he also gives us an answer when we turn to him. And we need to keep this kind of balance in play when we think about what it means to have doubt. 
Because many of us, I think, tend to fall into one or two extremes. Maybe you came from a faith background that didn't allow for doubts. Don't question anything. Don't be weak. Don't question the Bible. You can't question the Lord. How dare you? And while that might sound super spiritual on the surface, friends, it's not. Not only is it unbiblical, but it's actually really unhealthy. Churches that create environments where it's not safe to have doubts tend to produce more skeptics than believers. Because if you have doubts, how can you ever get answers if you're not allowed to raise them, right? So we have to keep this openness to allowing doubt and being a place to allow for doubt. But on the other hand, we live in a culture which really prides itself on doubt. We pride ourselves on skepticism, question everything, hold on to truth loosely. What, you believe that for sure? You're naive, right? Maybe you're here this morning and that's where you're at, just a, just a, a, a tense skepticism about the world. Maybe the whole idea of Advent and God coming into the world just seems very unlikely to you. I want you to know that we're glad you're here and I think you will find our church a safe place to have doubts. Can I just ask you to consider one thing this morning? Just consider one thing before you leave this morning. Is all of your doubt purely rational? In other words, does all of your doubt come from the fact that you just don't have enough facts? Or is there maybe something else to it? Could it be that your doubt comes from the fact that you know, deep down, you have an intuitive sense that if the birth of Jesus Christ in the world is true, that would mean your whole life would have to change. Is that where some of your doubt comes from this morning? Do you have a sense that accepting this new information would completely change how you live and think about the world? At the very least, you ought to be true to yourself and doubt your doubts. You may be surprised how God answers you this morning. Abraham, having this first doubt answered, decides that God's promises are enough for him. And so we arrive at this momentous event in the Bible, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Abraham believed in the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham received right standing with the Lord, not on account of anything he had done, but by trusting the word of God as it was spoken to him. And so we see now from this encounter with God, Abraham has moved from a place of fear to courage and from courage to having faith. But what does it mean, really, to believe the Lord and have it counted to us as righteousness? Well, if it's okay with you, I want to take that elf and put it on a shelf for a moment. Nobody got that? Take the, take the elf. Okay. Christmas joke. Nobody got it. All right. That's fine. Shame on me. We're going to come back to that question in a moment. What does it mean that Abraham believed the Lord and counted to him as righteousness? We're going to come back to that after we move from this place of seeing how Abraham goes from faith to having 
hope. From faith to hope. While Abraham was counted righteous because of his faith, we see that it wasn't a particularly strong or a perfect faith. In verse 8, Abraham raises this second doubt. How shall I know that I will possess the Lord or possess the land, O Lord? How will I know? Because I don't feel capable of taking this land even if you give it to me. And what happens next is one of the most incredible events that takes place in all of Scripture. If you've read this text before, have you ever just, like, as you're going through and you're reading this, have you ever noticed how God never has to tell Abraham what to do with the animals? Have you noticed that? Like, he gives them this list that reminds me of the 12 days of Christmas. Like, you're going down the list, and it's like turtle dove, a pigeon, and you're expecting, you know, partridge in a pear tree, (laughs) right, at the end of it. But before God even finishes his sentence, Abraham is out the door. He has the animals. He's brought them back, and he's cut them up. He's put them in two lines, and he's like, all right, let's do this thing. What's going on here? How did Abraham know what to do with these animals? Well, we know from our historical records and our findings that in ancient Near Eastern practice, it was very common that when two parties, when they would make a contract or what we call a covenant with each other, that they would ratify or they would seal that contract with some kind of ceremony, okay? Kind of like today we we have ceremonies for marriage. But the more common way in our culture, if we want to ratify a contract, what do we do? We sign it, right? That's how we make sure. So, you know, we come into an agreement. We say, I don't know if you're going to keep up your end of the agreement. How do I know that you're going to keep up your end of the deal? Well, we both sign it, right? And if you don't keep up your end of the deal, someone's coming after you, right? There's a punishment for you. We use contracts to make sure that the other person in the agreement keeps up their end of things. We do it through written contracts. This culture did it through ceremonies, through acts, through rituals. There's a very important passage in uh, the book of Jeremiah that makes absolutely no sense unless you link it back here to, Je- uh, to Genesis 15. So in Jeremiah 34, 18, there's this really important helpful passage where the Lord is, he's indicting the people of Israel and he says, the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of my covenant that they have made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. Do you see what's going on there? There was more than one way in this culture that you could make a contract, but a very common way was to cut animals, to put them in two, and then the person who walks in half between them, they're in effect, they're saying, as they're walking through these two pieces, they're saying, I am the carcass of carcasses. If I do not keep up my end of the deal, may you do to me what was done to these animals. Do you see that? That's how this generally worked. If, if, the, if the covenant contract was between two parties that were relatively equal in status or in power, they would take turns walking through, or they would walk through together, in effect to say, I'm holding you accountable. If you don't do what you say you're going to do, I'm going to, you're going to be punished like these animals were punished, right? I'm coming after you. But in the situation where the power was not equal, where social status was not equal, where maybe it was a king and a servant, or a king and someone who had been conquered, it was the servant alone who would walk through the pieces, Because the person who was lower in power and status took upon all the weight of the contract. 
So if the contract was broken by either party, it would be the person with less power who was punished. So come back to Abraham now. He knows what's going on. He knows what's happening. All right. God is my master. I'm the servant. I got to do this. I got to walk between the two lines. Each of us in this room, I think we're just like Abraham. And by nature, we think that if it's going to be possible for us to get on God's good side, I'm going to be the one that's going to have to do it. I'm going to have to make myself worthy. I'm going to have to earn getting in God's good favor. God's going to like me. I'm going to have to do something about it. And that's why what happens next is so amazing. A deep sleep and a dreadful darkness fall upon Abraham. He feels this weight of responsibility before his mighty God, and he is crushed to a point that he cannot even stand. And now look down at verse 17. It says that a smoking firepot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces. What does smoke and fire remind you of? The Exodus. Common images that are used to communicate the presence of the Lord. God appears to Moses in a fiery bush. He leads the people out of Egypt by cloud and by fire. This word for torch could also be translated blazing lightning. And it's the same word that's used to communicate God's presence on Mount Sinai when he comes down and meets Moses in the lightning. So can you imagine the scene? This dread and this darkness and then this appearance of smoke and a blazing lightning and fire in the smoke that passes through the pieces. The splendor and the awe that Abraham must have felt as he saw that it was not he that was walking through the pieces but his God that passed between them. God was no longer communicating his promises to Abraham in words alone, but in action. By his word and deed, he says to Abraham, I will make your name great. I will give you offspring. I will give them a land. I will rescue them when they are afflicted. If I do not do this, if I do not keep up any of my ends of this covenant with you, may I be cut into pieces. May I take on all the curses of the pun and punishments. May I be cut off. How could this be possible? How could this be possible? What makes this whole scene even more incredible is not only that God walks through the pieces, but that Abraham does not. God takes all of the responsibility for the covenant on himself. And that means if he breaks covenant or if we break covenant, God will be the one to take the curse. How could this be? How could the unchangeable creator God ever take on the curses and the punishments of this contract? He would have to subject himself to his own creation. And this could only happen if he were to add to himself a human nature that could experience misery and pain and death. Friends, 
Genesis 15 is one of the clearest pointers in the Old Testament to the coming of Jesus Christ. Do you see it? God in the flesh who would walk between the pieces and take our sin, curse, and punishment. In the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, we are told of the events which took place prior to Jesus' birth. We read of this angel of the Lord that came to Joseph and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus saves his people from their sins. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the God-man who takes on human flesh and subjects himself to his creation through death on a cross. And so in Jesus' birth and in his life and his death and in his victorious resurrection, we see that God keeps his promises. He can be trusted. And this is why we, like Abraham, can have reason for hope. In this life, we will have trouble. We will have seasons of great fear and doubt. But we can also have courage and we can have hope because God has kept his word. Jesus has overcome the world. Friends, this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God was faithful and kept his promises when we were unfaithful and we didn't keep our promises to him. God put the weight of the curse, the punishments for our sins on the back of his son who willingly went to the cross for us. And by faith, Paul says in Galatians, we too can receive the blessings. We too can be made righteous. So, going back to my bad joke. I'm working on my dad jokes, you know. What does it mean that Abraham believed the Lord and counted it to him, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. You see, faith is the glue that holds everything that we've said together. And what we must see from Genesis 15 is that the key is not the strength or the perfection of our faith. Abraham's faith was not particularly strong, nor was it perfect. The key is the strength of the God of whom we put our faith in. We, like Abraham, must learn that God is reliable and he is faithful. God can be trusted. And since we, like Abraham, we deserve nothing of what God gives to us, we must see God's mercy and his kindness as nothing but a gift. We must be able to receive it as a gift. This is why it is by faith we are counted righteous. It is trusting God when we put our faith in Him 
that he is merciful, that he is loving, and that he is kind, and that he has done everything that we need to be made right with him. He loves us, and he likes us. As we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, we see a vivid picture that God has kept his promises. That God has kept his promises that he made to Abraham in Genesis 15. We see it right here on this table. Jesus became the carcass of carcasses. He passed through the pieces as he was hung between two criminals, counted as nothing more than a lowly roadside common thief. In this Jesus, when we put our faith in him, that is where we will find life. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to take a moment to get this image of your, in your head of what it must have been like for Abraham in the darkness, seeing the lightning and the blazing fire walking between the pieces. I want to let you in on a little secret. At the table, we have something better. We have something better. To Abraham, God showed him what he will do. And to us, he shows us what he has done. That's what we see in the supper. And so if you are here this morning and your faith is weak, if you're in a season of fear or doubt, remember how tender God is to us. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. He can be trusted. He has overcome the world. If you joined us this morning, you're not a follower of Christ. Again, we're really glad that you're here this morning. But we would ask you not to partake of the bread and the juice as they come to you. And that's not because we're trying to be exclusive to you in any way. We actually say this out of love for you because the Bible teaches that if you do not respond in faith to the gospel and partake of the bread and the juice, you're actually bringing judgment upon yourself. And kind of as a metaphor, it would be kind of like cutting up some animals and walking through them yourself, like the guys did in Jeremiah 34, bringing judgment on themselves. So we would ask you to refrain from the bread and the juice this morning. Instead, to consider the mercy and the loving kindness of this God who takes on the sin and the curse, who has walked the path of curse for his people that they might find life and hope. Will this be the first year for you where the birth of Jesus Christ is good news of great joy? By faith, God promises to move us from fear to courage and from courage to hope. God brings hope into the world through His Son, Jesus Christ. And the message of Advent and Christmas is that we can have hope. Those who have hope will share their hope with others. And so as the gospel of Jesus Christ advances in the world, so too does hope. So may courage and hope advance in the minds and hearts of all those who have heard and received God's word this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we stand in awe that as far back as the first book of the scriptures, we see your intention to come down and be with us. 
to take on our sin, our curse, and our punishment so that we could be made righteous, so that we could be in right standing with you, so that we could have a loving relationship with you, so that we would know that we are loved and we are liked by you. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful truth of Advent that you have come into this world through the birth of Jesus Christ, your Son, and that he has lived this life and he has walked through the pieces for our sake. We believe this morning, Lord, but help our unbelief. Help us to trust in you, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.